Good afternoon, everyone. Dr. Stillman here, and today we are going to be talking about are serum testosterone levels actually declining? The reason that this is so important is that not only is the answer, as you may not be surprised to learn, yes, but the implications of this are enormous and have a lot to do with what we see in what I would generally describe as our civilizational decay uh, that you all have a front row seat to and that many of you are rightly horrified by. So, Without further ado, let's jump into it. So the first paper I wanna talk about is one of the most interesting papers I've probably read in the last year. This is a study where they took different cohorts of men and they looked at how their testosterone levels were declining. And it's really important that studies like this get done because when you look at a, a thing like testosterone, there's lots of different reasons why numbers might get lower. Maybe men move indoors, going from a 100% time outside, practically speaking, historically, or at least in sunlight, you know, lack of artificial light. There was almost no artificial light available 100 years ago, right? To an almost entirely indoor existence represents a massive change in our environment. Uh, things like chemicals, endocrine disrupting compounds, we're going to talk about those more later today, may have an enormous impact on testosterone levels. Things like what we eat, how we eat it, how we prepare it, how much stress we're under, all kinds of different factors may play a critical role in testosterone levels. And this paper dove into, are testosterone levels actually declining in American men, or are we just seeing the effects of an aging populace? Because you have to remember, right, if there's more and more and more older and older men in a population, it's going to look like the testosterone level is dropping, but really the proportion of aging men or older men is higher. As in, if you have a very young country, very young male populace, it's going to look low. You have a much bigger, uh, older populace, you're going to have a, a much lower testosterone level. So that's one of the big questions in the testosterone literature is to what degree are T levels as an average declining because men are aging versus environmental levels. Let's look at the magnitude that can be um, attributed to the environmental factors because that's what this paper really gets at. So... It starts with age-specific estimates of mean testosterone appear to vary year by year by observation and by birth cohort, and estimates of longitudinal declines in T typically outstrip cross-sectional decreases. These observations motivate a hypothesis of a population-level decrease in T over calendar time, independent of chronological aging. Translation, men's testosterone levels are going down, not because they're getting older, but because of something that's changing in their environment, their diet, how they're thinking, how they're living. This is a cohort of uh, randomly selected men ages 45 to 79. That's very important, right? This is not a study about young men. This is a study about men aging who are in the prime age range for age-related declines in testosterone, right? Uh, baseline, T1 was 1987 through 1999. Two follow-ups, 1995 to 1997, 2000, 2004. This is almost close to 20 years, approximately 15 years of data. It's a lot of data. Okay, and during that time, the estimated population level declines are greater in magnitude than the cross-sectional declines in T typically associated with age. Translation, T levels are declining regardless of age. These results indicate that recent years have seen a substantial and as yet unrecognized age-independent population level decrease in T in American men, potentially attributable to birth cohort differences or to health or environmental effects not captured in observed data. Translation. We have no idea why testosterone levels are declining, but we're 100% sure that they are. And this is either a change in the baseline level of the men that we're looking at, like maybe they come from a different 
place on earth or testosterone dynamics in the body are different or maybe they have a different you know nutritional status based on their mother or whatever lots of things that are sort of antenatal right versus things that are happening to them in their environment and changes in their lifestyle now i don't want to get too into the weeds on this paper because most of it is kind of well i think the real things that shine in this paper are the two graphs that i want to show you so this first one is is these testosterone levels de declines right so these are total testosterone on the left y-axis age on the x-axis okay crude mean testosterone total testosterone concentrations by the study wave with confidence bands okay so the confidence bands show you kind of where these people tend to run and i got to tell you as a guy who measures a lot of testosterone levels both in myself and in my patients there's a one to two 100 to 200 point spread in men who are not on testosterone replacement therapy as far as their total t which means that if you wake up on monday and check your testosterone on monday chances are on friday with no changes to your diet and lifestyle you're going to have 100 to 200 point digressions up or down potentially from that point okay now that's not a scientific study it's just what i've seen in my practice which i want to make a quick caveat for by the way before i forget we have got a wonderful uh, master class on thursdays it's a 100% free educational uh, class that we run at 10 o'clock. It's only for people who are on our list. So if you're not on our email list, get on it because these are master classes that after they're run live are gonna be going behind our paywall. They're a thank you to you from us for being on our email list. We realize you have a limited amount of time. You've got an infinite number of people who are badgering at you, pestering you, trying to sell you stuff, trying to, trying to get you to buy their program. We do have things for sale and the, the food that I eat is not free. The air I breathe is still so far, fortunately, very free. Um, but we do appreciate you being on our email list because the only way that we are able to provide you so much free content is because some of you, at least, buy some of our stuff. And on that note, back to testosterone levels. Okay, <clears throat> so crude testosterone levels you can see in these three cohorts are going down. So the 1987 group, their averages are in the 500s to 550. The 1995 to 97 group, these levels are in the mid 400s, right? And then the 2002 to 2004 group, these guys are dropping off of an absolute cliff. This is miserable. Um, part of that's related to age, right? You see that these two groups have got a further age range than the men in the 1987 cohort, but still, I mean, these are much lower levels. And this is independent of age, remember? So the averages are dropping, okay? Another great graph from here that you see is this one where they have total testosterone on the y-axis and age over here. And you'll notice that the youngest birth cohorts, right, 1916 to 1919, have higher testosterone levels at a more advanced age than the men in the, in the younger birth cohorts. And that's very interesting. The lines are similar, suggesting that the aging process is a predictable, reproducible, consistent effect. But where they are on the y-axis is different, which suggests that men who are younger today have testosterone levels that are 10, 20 years older than they are on a historical basis. Why is the subject of much debate and consternation? The best, one of my favorite papers on this, maybe not the best, but one of my favorite papers on this is this incredible review on testosterone deficiency. And it's a, really a history paper. And we're gonna take a little deep dive into this one because this paper is so full of crazy, wild, out there, scary information, it's going to blow your mind and knock your socks off. It may not be stuff you don't really know, but to hear it put out in this level of detail and historical context, I think is actually very sobering. It certainly makes me feel a little bit more serious. Okay, 
Over the centuries, castration has been performed as punishment and to produce obedient slaves, but also to preserve the soprano voices of prepubertal boys. That's important. Remember that. We're coming back to it. Modern androgen therapy started in 1935 when Enrust Lacour isolated testosterone from bull testicles in Amsterdam. Why did I highlight these two things from the abstract to bring to your attention? So number one, we actually have a lot of data on castration historically because it's been used so widely, and we're going to go into that in a minute. However, we know what happens when you deprive men of testosterone. We've really only started to measure testosterone levels in the last 90 years. And 90 years, think about everything that's happened in, 19, in 90 years. In 1935, we had barely invented the electric light bulb. There were places in the United States where electrical power was still not available. People were still using kerosene, lanterns, candles. Uh, 1935, uh, we hadn't even fought the First World War. We didn't have atomic power. We didn't have atomic weapons. We didn't have all the chemicals that came out of the Green Revolution. We hadn't started to use um, mass-produced chemical fertilizers. The whole world was essentially on a 100% organic local diet that was without any form or relatively speaking totally almost virtually absent electromagnetic radiation whether we're talking about your cell phone whether we're talking about light coming out of your you know your 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 tablet your your smartphone your computer whatever there's almost no artificial light except arguably the incandescent light bulb everything is still pen and paper everything is still in person 90 years ago we started to be able to actually test and create testosterone as a as a lab and then as a therapeutic right and in 90 years since then we've radically changed everything about how we live and the reason that's so important to you is that i could not find a good paper in the time i had to prep this that showed me what male testosterone levels were in like 1935 and i'm really i'm going to keep looking for that and i'll let you know when i have it but it's really interesting to think that what if we only have 20 to 30 years of data on what normal testosterone levels are? And what if those levels are, because remember, look at those levels and how much they've changed in just 20 or 30 years. They've gone down on average by 100 to 200 points. So what if normal testosterone levels are more like 900 to 1200 or 1200 to 1500 and modern men just live in such a sick, weird, messed up environment that they're a half to a third of that? Uh, again, I'm not the expert on this. I want to dig more into this, but it's a really interesting question. So let's talk a little bit more about castration because it's fascinating. So castration's major purpose was to generate obedient slaves who were loyal to their masters or rulers and being infertile could not create competing offspring. The Chinese eunuch system, for those of you who don't know, a eunuch is someone who's been castrated, with several thousands existing at a time, continued until the end of the imperial period in 1912. It's remarkable. They started in 1300 BC and they ran through 1912. The last Chinese eunuch, Sun Yaoting, died at the age of 94 in 1996. Only the fact that imperial eunuchs could obtain high-ranking positions and considerable power as well as wealth makes it plausible that adult men underwent this gruesome operation. It was performed by licensed surgeons just outside the imperial court in Beijing by cutting off the penis and testicles. About 25% of volunteers did not survive this bloody operation. Why am I bothering to regale you with this gruesome account of castration in ancient China? Because I think it's telling that some men are willing to sacrifice what many of us would consider to be our most important organ in order to gain advantage and wealth 
in the world. That means that some men are willing to compromise this element of their body in order to achieve some kind of material gain. I think that's really interesting, given the fact that in our society today, we have a lot of men who are perfectly happy to not worry about being masculine and who are very content to sit at home being very feminine in most respects. Um, and many of them have low testosterone levels, just so you guys know. So during the Ming Dynasty, eunuchs attained outstanding influence and wealth. Uh, the this, I'm not going to go through the examples of this, but that's a really important point for you to understand. In our modern world, men with low T often achieve incredible success and power because they're willing to work inside of a system that, I hate to say it, practically speak speaking, treats them as a slave. The impact of peri- and post-pubertal castration on the phenotype of these men was described extensively by Wagenseil, who in 1922 established an anatomical institute at the Chinese-German Tongqi University in Shanghai, where he examined a series of 31 Chinese eunuchs aged 45 to 57. These eunuchs had no beard growth and sparse body hair, and 21 of the 31 had developed kyphosis as a clear sign of osteoporosis. Why is this important? Uh, men today are having increasingly um, stooped posture, kyphosis, early onset osteoporosis, and are less and less masculine. And I think that if you're looking at the phenotype of a man with low testosterone, you're seeing it more and more out and about in modern America. And that correlates, right, with lower and lower testosterone levels in men that I mentioned in the earlier paper. All right. Eunuchs probably already existed in ancient Egypt from the times of legendary queen Semiramis. Eunuchs were reported from Assyria, and the system developed and continued into the Islamic world in the Middle East and North Africa. Over the centuries, slaves were deported from sub-Saharan Africa to the Islamic cities and courts, and many of the slaves who survived the exhausting march through the desert were then castrated to serve as laborers, guards, administrators, and even soldiers. It is astonishing that these tasks could be fulfilled without the anabolic effects of testosterone. Why is that so interesting? Many men today do not understand that their testosterone is low because they think I can still do heavy manual labor or I'm not totally and completely out of shape or I'm not a complete and total basket case or I can still make love to my wife. Therefore, my testosterone level is normal. OK, you don't need a optimal level of testosterone in order to be able to function. There's also a certain amount of slack that gets picked up when the testicles are out of the picture, i.e. the person's been castrated or the testicles have been severely damaged. And the adrenal glands will actually make a certain amount of testosterone. So you kind of limp along, not feeling great, not looking great, not doing great, being obedient, being, you know, um, directable, being potentially very intelligent, but you don't have that drive, that verve, that excitement, that enthusiasm for life that's normal and typified by high testosterone levels. And another reason why I think this is important is that it really clearly delineates that men who have been castrated can still be very effective um, slaves. They can be very effective laborers. They can be very effective cogs in a machine, right? So in the end, part of what's so sick and toxic about our modern global economic system is that it is not allowing men to be rewarded for, and people in general, for being rewarded for being uh, innovative and creative and doing their own thing and making their own way, right? It's rewarding them for going along with and complying with what's happening in society. And that's why you're going to see men who are protecting their testosterone levels speaking out about the ridiculousness of what's going on in modern life and saying that it's wrong and that we shouldn't do it. While other men who are obviously, um, uh, I don't know what to say, uh, some men are more comfortable with the sad state of affairs in our modern world than others.
Okay. Um, it has been estimated that the transatlantic deportation of Africans to the Americas between 1450 and 1870 comprised about 11.5 million people, while the entire Islamic deportation of slaves from Africa between 650 and 1920 AD amounted to 7 million people, and several million of these African slaves were castrated. This constant drain of, sub, of manpower effectively prevented economic and cultural development of sub-Saharan Africa. It's a very interesting hypothesis, although I think it probably needs to be fleshed out more. I don't know if you can say that this alone has crippled sub-Saharan Africa, although I'm open to the idea. In medieval times, slaves were also exported from Europe to the Islamic countries. These slaves were mainly from Eastern Europe and Central Asian countries. Isn't it interesting that the most economically depressed areas of, um, well, two very economically depressed areas, well, I guess three to this day, Sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, are areas where there was historically a very brisk slave trade of men who were being castrated. Does this mean that the future belongs to the populations that do not castrate their males? Just throwing that out there for your consideration. And what are the long-term consequences for you, your family, your nearest and dearest, your tribe, if you will, um, if testosterone levels are allowed to be, um, oh, we lost Adobe, we lost Adobe. Oh, Adobe, you do this to me. It's so cruel. It's not fair. All I want you to do is work a little bit. And then you and then you quit on me. Lame sauce. Okay. And we're back. Okay, back to... Okay, uh, castration before puberty maintains the high voice of boys that soprano and alto voices with the acoustic volume of an adult male result. Such high-pitched voices were considered desirable amongst music lovers, especially at times when women were not allowed to sing in church or in operatic performances. Prepubertal castrates belonged to casts of operas in the 17th and 18th centuries. In the Vatican choirs, these voices could be heard until the early 20th, early 20th centuries. The middle Italian cities of Norcia and Presi were a center for the operation on young boys. In the solitude of this hidden Apennine Valley, a surgical school had been established in the 13th century and the 30 family dynasties monopolizing the trade there guaranteed utmost secrecy concerning this illegal operation. Is this ringing any bells for you regarding the castration of um, men, right? It's always been decried or it's, I'm not gonna say always, it's, now generally recognized as barbaric it's called wrong it was so in the renaissance and yet they did it anyway under the table black market you know behind closed doors right because as it goes on to say strangely enough while castration was forbidden in the vanican state which extended over most of middle italy it was not forbidden to employ castrated singers However, most of the thousands of prepubertal castrates lost their virility in vain as they did not achieve the promised career as a singer, developed only mediocre voices, and were ridiculed by their contemporaries. Is this not ringing any bells for you regarding how young children um, who are questioning their identity um, are being treated today? Hmm. Prepubertal castration provides an involuntary experiment on the influence of testosterone on longevity. A retrospective comparison of life expectancy of singers born between 1950 and 1858 and castrated before puberty in order to preserve their high voices 
to intact singers born at the same time did not reveal a significant difference between the lifespan of castrated intact singers. Translation, getting castrated does not re reduce your longevity. And I'm gonna rephrase that because it's very important to be very clear about this. In Renaissance Europe, in Renaissance and industrial Europe, being castrated did not reduce your longevity. Endocrine disrupting compounds may change that. And we need to talk about that next, but not before we get done with this, this paper. Um, and this is why when men are asking me, should I go on testosterone? One of the things I don't tell them is that there's a guarantee that it's gonna prolong your life because there's no guarantee that it's gonna do anything of the sort. Do I think that in our modern world, it's likely that it does? I do. Uh, do I think that I have really ironclad data on that? I don't feel that I do. I would love to have it. So, um, as it was known that removal of the testes caused the clinically evident symptoms of hypogonadism, including impotence, prescribing ingestion of testes to remedy the symptoms was a medicinal reflex, medical reflex inherent in organotherapy pr practice since antiquity. Translation, it's obvious what happens to a man when his balls are not working. A logical solution to that syndrome, what we call hypogonadism, would be to give a man the balls, testicles, in some form or other of an animal and then restore their virility. Anyway, that was what doc um, doctors and healers used to do, or thought made sense. This doesn't work, and it's very important for us to talk about why it doesn't work. It's very simple. The testes synthesize testosterone, but do not store their products in contrast to other endocrine organs, such as the thyroid and the pancreas. The daily production of an adult man of about six to eight milligrams of testosterone is contained in roughly one kilo of bull testicles. And even if this amount of testosterone were to be taken orally, the testosterone would be inactivated by the first pass effect in the liver. Translation, eating bull testicles does not increase your testosterone by giving you testosterone from the bull testicles. Why? Number one, as soon as that testosterone is synthesized in the testicles, it's immediately pushed out into the circulation to act all over the body. Okay. Number two, when you ingest testosterone orally, it goes through the liver when it's when that piece of food is digested. The liver is going to metabolize that. And so that testosterone may never actually hit your bloodstream and the rest of your body. That's why oral preparations of anabolic steroids, such as testosterone, but not just limited to that, have such a dismal therapeutic um not window, but therapeutic history. They cause a lot of liver problems. And that's why testosterone today is used transdermally through the skin um, or in, as an injectable or as an implantable pellet. We're not gonna talk about all that today because we don't have time. Okay, therefore all testicular organ therapy administered orally can only be considered as a placebo medication, which however may not be without its own effects. What does that mean? It means that there's a real placebo effect behind these products, which is why there's still such a profound market for them. And it's why there's so many men who are shelling out money for herbs and stuff like that, that when you look at the actual literature, don't work to boost testosterone levels. This is something that we cover a lot with men who were coaching because we want them to understand the difference between something that for sure is going to raise your testosterone and something that's going to work by the placebo effect. Um, Jim tells a great story, Jim Laird that is, a great story about a young kid who came to him desiring steroids and Jim gave him sugar pills and told the kid to lift heavy and sleep as much as possible. And this kid put on like 20 pounds of muscle in a matter of months. So Jim tricked this kid into thinking he was taking anabolic steroids and he turned him into an absolute monster virtually overnight. 
So a lot of you guys are out there wondering, where's my magic pill, potion, powder, whatever. You are the placebo effect, as Dr. Joe Dispenza would say. Enough. Um, one last thing I want to mention about that. There is a real question in my mind as to whether or not ingesting the organs of an animal may give us the raw nutrients that that organ needs most. And if that's the case, would that not then spur or improve the function of that organ? To my knowledge, no one has really tested that hypothesis well, um, but I think it's an interesting one. And that's why if someone comes to me and says, I took testosterone, or I should say testicle pills or whatever, like freeze-dried cow testicle extract or something like that, and it was amazing. I felt so much better. I had so much virility and enthusiasm for life. It was like being on testosterone. I'm not going to just treat them as someone who placeboed themselves into a therapeutic benefit. I'm going to respect the fact that that's a hypothesis that I haven't tested or been able to vet in the literature and say, maybe it's placebo, maybe it's the nutrition, and maybe it's you know something else that I haven't even thought of. Um, but we can't be too hasty in concluding why uh, these things are working. Okay, a really interesting graph here, right? This is uh, figure one, age at death of castrated and intact singers, N equals 50, N equals 50. So these are men over here who are, and these men must have lived the same lives, same income, same position in society, same lifestyle, same bad habits, same ethnicity, same everything. This is a very nicely controlled study, at least as well as you could ask for from historical data, right? Because look at this. This is born 18, 1580 to 1859. That's a very long period of history, right? So uh, in, in these men, you don't see a statistically significant difference in their life expectancy or their age of death. And that's really important, as I said before, because I don't tell men who are asking me for testosterone that I'm sure it's going to prolong their life. I just say, look, you know, there's a lot of evidence that this, you know, may prolong your life and it's certainly going to improve the quality. But what are your goals? And we, we always come back to what are your goals with this therapy? OK. Uh, last, I think this is the last bit. Clinicians assembled at a workshop on androgen therapy sponsored by the WHO, NIH, and FDA. I know, I know, if you follow me, you probably are not that enthusiastic about these guys' opinions, but bear with me. In 1990, came to the conclusion the consensus view was that the major goal of therapy is to replace testosterone levels at as close to physiologic concentrations as is possible. There is one thing not talked about in this paper that I think it's very important that we talk about, and that's what are optimal levels of testosterone in men and why do we believe that they are optimal now we do not live in a state of nature anymore we live in a in a modern world that is full of scary endocrine disrupting chemicals okay what's such a big deal or what's so important about these endocrine disrupting chemicals they have real effects on male function and the, and the function of testosterone so from this study, several studies have shown that endocrine disrupting compounds have a variety of pathophysiological effects. These include failure of spermatogenesis, embryonic development, and association with testicular cancer and long-term metabolic effects. Okay, why is that so important? I said earlier that we don't have great data from what I can tell that giving men testosterone prolongs their lives, but that's based largely on the historical precedent that we have to work with right? Specifically in that 
data on the men who have been castrated versus non-castrated. I, I think it's a reasonable hypothesis that in our modern world where these endocrine disrupting compounds are so ubiquitous that men need higher levels of testosterone than historically in order to compete with these. Because what you need to understand about endocrine disrupting compounds is the way that they disrupt the endocrine system is number one, they can have direct toxic effects on endocrine cells. So for example, if heavy metals are an endocrine disruptor and iron is one of the heavy metals that if it accumulates to a certain degree in the hypothalamic pituitary axis, it will in and of itself cause failure of testosterone production at the level of the brain. In other words, the cells that tell the testicles to produce testosterone will stop working and testosterone will not be produced anymore. Okay. We may surmise, and I think it's reasonable to surmise, that higher levels of mercury, cadmium, aluminum, arsenic, any of those toxins in those cells that produce a cytotoxic effect, in other words, an effect that is dangerous or harmful to the cell that impairs its energy production, I think it's reasonable to assume that those might have that same effect, okay? If that's the case, then as those things accumulate, we would expect testosterone levels to go down. That's one of the possible hypotheses for why testosterone levels um, are lower. The other thing is that once the testosterone has been produced, let's say there's no toxins involved and it's not affecting the brain in any way and the testicles are totally online and they're pumping out testosterone, pun intended. Let's say that that's happening, right? If there's an endocrine disrupting compound in the periphery, in the cells that the testosterone is supposed to act on, the endocrine disrupting compound can interfere with that testosterone and therefore you need a higher level of testosterone in order to overcome the disruption coming from the endocrine disrupting compound. That I think yields us with a potential that optimal male health or optimal male vitality, as you might call it, as the, it's the title of a program we actually run, by the way. Um, optimal male vitality might be achieved when we reach higher than normal testosterone levels. And this is why the testosterone replacement industry is truly now an industry. There are so many clinics that are just specializing in replacing testosterone for men who are aging and who are struggling with the effects of aging in our modern world that is loaded with toxins and that is really, uh, I think, dangerous. And I don't know if I want to say dangerous, but it is very anti-male. It's very unfriendly to men who are, who are interested in and who believe in normal masculinity. Um, and obviously, there is a perverse incentive by the people who control the global economy to have an economy and societies of obedient, um, obedient men who do not uh, rebel. And in, in, for that reason, it's in their interests, arguably, to create a socioeconomic system that will naturally suppress testosterone levels. And I will leave you on that note. This is a Monday Masterclass. These videos do go out to my Substack, which is stillmanmd.substack.com. You can get these emails in your inbox on Mondays. And after most of them, there is a Q&A with me, uh, which is in a private Zoom invite for my premium subscribers. For just 20 bucks a month, you get access to these. Uh, and they usually last 30 to 45 minutes. So as always, oh, and make sure you're on the stillmanwellness.com email newsletter so that you get updates on our uh, Thursday Masterclass, which is at 10 a.m. Thanks everyone for watching. Take care. Have a great day. Don't forget to get outside and watch out for their endocrine disrupting compounds that are turning you into obedient, complacent, compliant consumers.